You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. This show is a long-form, one-on-one conversation with a veteran in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt, nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events in order to enhance, enliven, and invigorate American theater and the live performance arts. My guest this week was Steve Callahan. Um, I hesitate to say this week because I'm recording this intro late to actually broadcast the episode, and we're running this episode concurrently with Profiles and Havoc, so it's a little disingenuous. But um, I thought Steve warranted being on both platforms uh, as both a veteran and an artist. Um I can't remember what I said for his intro and profiles and havoc, but I'll say this much. Um, when I think of Steve, and I should say I recorded his intro for profiles and havoc a, a while ago, so I'm, I'm I'm not lying. I really don't remember what I said for that. Um, and if I'm redundant, it's completely by accident. But when I think of Steve and his work, what comes to mind is a little bit of Kerouac, a little bit of George Orwell. Um, a little bit of uh, you know Joseph Conrad, a little bit of sense of that that old world mentality of an of a writer, you know someone who's acutely aware that they are a writer, going out and pursuing adventure because or for two things. I mean, one you know they're not a psychopath; they're doing it because they're interested in whatever that adventure is, but also because it rebounds to the benefit of their art and it makes them a more interesting writer. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was famously that way. Um, and that's to my mind, what the path that Steve chose for himself. Um, I won't give away a whole lot of spoilers about what we talk about, but, uh, he, um, you know, very consciously made the choice to join the Marines, uh, with his art in mind. And I think that's an interesting and worthwhile uh, choice. I think it's something, I think it's a choice. I, I hesitate to say this because I don't want to pontificate uh, too much. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't like to pontificate? But I, I, I don't want to do it too much. I, but I think a lot of artists would be well served by doing that. And I'm going to generalize. I think a lot of young male artists would do well to do that. There's something about being a young man that I think you need the dirt under your nails. And those young men that can get the dirt under their nails doing what their actual life ambition is, more power to them. I mean, if you're, I I don't know, uh, Justin Timberlake or Ryan Gosling or somebody, you can go on Mickey Mouse Club and live a showbiz life and... but and that's scratching every itch you have and you're in it and you're grinding and that's, and that's your thing. Um, and you know, it's your thing and you feel confident and fulfilled and uh, feel like you're constantly developing as an artist in, in, in that more power to you. But I think for a lot of young men, and I say this as somebody that auditions a lot of young male actors frequently. Um, and, and it's so funny, you know, this is, I, I don't think people in, in the theater world would find this that uncommon Females, you never have a problem finding talent. So many talented women 
when it comes to finding actors. And again, I'm talking about acting uh, specifically, but I think this extrapolates to all different kinds of artistic medium. You, you always, it's always easy to find great female actors. To find men that can be chameleons the same way and can access their emotions as easily as women, uh, to find young men that can do that is very difficult. And some of my greatest joys in casting have been finding older male actors that started acting at a very young age, went off, had a career for 20 years, and are coming back to acting. And they are so much richer as an actor. And probably as a person. <laughs> I just thought that does have a double meaning. But but they really, um, they really are. Their art is so much deeper because they got the training when they were young. They know they you know learned a good technique. They just you know there were just barriers to accessing that emotional truth. Now, the follow up to that that I'll say now I am pontificating. Um, the follow up to that is that that's not wrong. I think it's easy to sit and go. Well, therefore, men need to be way more emotionally available, um, so they can be as easily you know access their emotions as easily as the young women can. Um, and again, I'm generalizing, but, but this has been my experience, um, in casting. And I would say, no, no, I, I think, I think it's not everything is a problem to be solved. Some things, um, are just facts and you accept them and you can do some forensics on why they're facts, but there's very good reasons why young men can't always access their emotions easily. And I think, a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, the natural role that men have to play in society and, uh, and what have you. So I say all that to say that when I think about Steve making a conscious choice to deepen his art by getting some dirt under his nails and, um, you know, going a bit more towards the extremes of the human experience um, and not in a voyeuristic way. I should differentiate that because Steve brought that up in the interview and it's a great point that I don't expound on that he raises, but you know, a lot of writers, um, <laughs> you know, will talk about, Oh, I had to you know, research, you know, heroin or cocaine and all that. And in order to write about it. And I, I guess, I mean, yeah, research is, is a big part of, of that medium, but there's a big difference between voyeuristically researching something and living it, uh, because it's your job and doing what Steve did in the military. It was not a voyeuristic pursuit. It was not, he was not a tourist, um, you know, in Afghanistan. And that goes a long way towards really making you a different kind of artist. And I think that a lot of people, a lot of young men would be well served by walking in that path. I think it would deepen and enrich a lot of the colors that they naturally have artistically. Um, and I also just think it's good for the soul. It's good for a young man's soul to have that grind, to have to be dis- uncomfortable, to be out of your element, um, to to do something uh, selfless and dangerous. <laughs> How's that for a combination? I, I, I think young men need a degree of danger, and if they if they're too comfortable, uh, I think it has a corrosive effect on their mental state. And I think they will find something dangerous regardless. It just probably won't be um, directed in a constructive manner. And um, 
I think those that choose the military to exercise those demons um, do so more wisely. I don't know. That's my pontification. Um, but this is what happens when I'm recording an episode or an intro to an episode uh, far too late in the day and I'm letting my thoughts go where they are. Um, this dude's just a great guy. I think you guys are going to love this conversation. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the Artistic Director at Veterans Repertory Theater. And this is The Savage Wonder of Steve Callahan. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad we could do this, man. You know, last time yeah, I'm excited. We, we talked was like uh, when you did uh, Vet Reps Right Loud and you were in the dark. So I had no, fr- I still had no <laughs> idea what you looked like. I was like, I don't know. Yeah. I talked to him for 15 minutes, but I have no idea who he is still. Yeah. Um, it's good to actually see you in the light, man. Yeah, man. It's, uh, it's, I'm not too far away from where I actually recorded that. I was up, up the streets of Philly uh, for the Marine Corps birthday. They have a, Every year they have this block party that they sequester, um, and it is like the Marine Corps Mecca. And so it was my second year attending, and it's a blast. It's a blast. What happens? What do they do? So are they have or is it music. just drinking? Okay. Yeah. So in the daytime, they have like uh, different tents that you can go to. People will sell like uh, last year. Um, they had a guy selling Marpat quilts. Or kilts, not quilts, kilts. Um, so there was a bunch of dudes wearing kilts and uh, a couple dudes selling coffee. And they have like a, it's like a block party in the daytime. And then at night, it is it is definitely a alcohol-induced haze. <laughs> and, yeah. and what's the uh, what's the arrest record during the uh, alcohol-induced phase part of the night? I can tell you for certain we dodged one the night that I ran. <laughs> Me and my buddies, we the cops were 100% called. Um, I was sober. I was like, I felt like a uh, a kindergarten teacher, like running around and, hey, you know, don't don't fight him. Get that out of your mouth. You know, like I was running around like <laughs> try, trying to stop all my friends from going to jail. But they, the cops were 100% called. Yeah. What is it like? Is it like a uh, this close to becoming a, like a barracks brawl? Like every year is that kind of the vibe, or is it collegial? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it, yeah. It's right. it's uh, it's it's hard to describe. It's like a barracks brawl, but in the best possible way. It, like mosh pit slash barracks yeah, absolutely. brawl. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like collegial beating the shit out of each other. Yes, yeah. sir. It's like an organized fight club. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's a good you. time. What's the age range of people that come to that? Is that something really the still younger Marines go to, or do you see the old timers coming into? Oh yeah, there was a ton of old time. So the youngest dude that was there was a uh, eighteen year old kid who was on his ten day boot leave. So he had just graduated <laughs> boot camp in his dress blues, and then uh, there was like a, a few a few dudes that were there that that looked to be like eighties. Uh, a couple of dudes wow. in their seventies. Yeah. My, my ex, her grandfather was a, a Marine served in world war two. And she, when we were together, she would tell me like he, he would go to that thing every year, every year while he was able-bodied. Um, and he passed when he was 96 or 97, I believe. And wow. I, I think he was there into his nineties. Holy shit. 
Wow. Yeah. That's freaking crazy. Are you from Philly originally? Is that your hometown? No, I'm from South Jersey. So I'm, I'm right gotcha. now. I'm about 30 minutes from Philadelphia, but I grew up uh, about an hour to the southeast. But you know Philly. Like Philly was oh, like yeah. your big city. It was like the city Philly's you were my closest city. to. Yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. I'm a big Eagles fan, Philly's fan. You know, it's um, funny. Yeah. I was I was talking about this. I mean, as a New Yorker, I talk about this, you know, I talk about Jersey a lot, usually in derisive terms. But I have sure. a theory about Jersey. I have a feeling like there's so many successful people that have come from Jersey. And I think my theory is that they all wanted to get the hell out of Jersey and they had to bust their ass and they're willing to do whatever it took. So you get your Springsteens and your John Bon Jovi's. And yeah. Like, and I remember, like, I even remember, um, like, uh, the original battle of Mogadishu, not the original, like there's been another one, but the battle of Mogadishu hit me really sure. hard. Um, right. cause I was a junior in high school and I was like, I was really interested in like the army and all that stuff. And I remember, um, when Newsweek did like a, a thing, like they showed the pictures of all the Rangers that had uh, died in the battle and they put just their hometown and a brief description about them. And I, I don't remember exactly, but I, I, I feel like 70, 80% of them were from Jersey. And I was wow. like, what the hell's going on in Jersey, man? Like, what, yeah. what, what is it about people in Jersey? Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel like, uh, what does a Jersey person feel like? Do you feel like a kinship with other New Jersey dudes when you're not in Jersey and you bump into each other and you're like, oh, fuck yeah, you made it out. Like, is there that sense or is that, am I just making this up? Yeah, I think Jersey is, it is its own entity unto itself. There is like, there is a rivalry within New Jersey um, where we can talk shit on each other. Like there's a very famous, there's two famous rivalries. Taylor Ham versus Pork Roll and whether or not Central Jersey exists. Those are like the two big debates in the state. And you can talk shit with each other. If you're from Jersey, you're like, hey man, it's it's definitely pork roll. And if you disagree, you can go fuck yourself. Am I allowed to swear? You totally are allowed to swear. But oh, okay. what wait, All explain right. that to me. What is are we talking like is this like Wawa's and uh, is that like that kind of thing, or is it? Are these convenience stores? What are we talking about? I don't. I don't know this at all. No. You've never heard of Taylor Ham? No. It's a breakfast meat. It's it's like bacon, but it's it's uh, I I'm pretty sure it's just like pig ground up. I don't know what it is, but it's good. If you've never had a pork roll egg and cheese, I'm telling you on a bagel. Whew, it's, I'll it's life changing. My 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 view. I am such a provincial New Yorker. Do you ever see that? <laughs> you, do you ever see that like a famous New Yorker cartoon of it's called a New Yorker's view of the world. And it like yeah. starts at the bottom of Manhattan Island and it's just a cartoon, but it's like, you can see like street by street, all of downtown Manhattan. And then it go all the way up to Harlem. And then it gets to the Bronx, a little <laughs> fuzzier. And then there's like Connecticut and Jersey's yeah. over here. There's yeah. a bunch of stuff and California's way over there. And that's it. <laughs> that's like the New Yorker's view of the world. Yeah, and, and yeah. that's I mean, like like I I feel like I've been more well traveled and I've lived out of the city for a long enough time now. But shit like that that I probably should know. That is I so don't. funny. And it's yeah. like right there on my doorstep. And what's it's the other right one? There. Central Jersey? That there's yeah, no Central, such Jersey. Central Jersey. Yeah. So th- there's 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 two classes of people. There's people that believe that there are two sections of New Jersey, North and South, which I am a firm believer. That is a hill that I die. Um, <laughs> and then there's people that are from this amorphous land of Central Jersey that claim that that's where they live. And they are wrong. They is, that are from Dick's? is that supposed to be Dick's? Is Dick's supposed to be Central Jersey? That whole area around oh, there? 
Like yeah, it's a bit further north, a bit oh, okay. further north than than Dix, um, but around that area is this okay. weird Bermuda Triangle of New Jersey. What's the cultural difference between North Jersey and South Jersey? Completely different. It's what is it? South Jersey. You get a mixture of good old boys, like like Southern Hicks, and like very Italian Americans. Yeah, um, of which I am both. Of which I am both. My 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 grandfather was Italian. He immigrated. Uh, he actually joined the Marines. He fought in the Korean War and immigrated over. And we sort of married into a good old boy country blumpkin type of uh, lifestyle down here in South Jersey. So, like you'll down here, you'll you could drive. I could drive maybe 10 minutes and there's an outdoor shooting range, you know, you can go to and hunting spots, but North Jersey is very much uh, urban uh, area. There's a lot like Newark is a really big city up there, Trenton. Um, and they're closer to the city. Um, and so they are more uh, like hoity toity, I guess. And I suburban, right? Like a yeah. super, really super suburban yeah. area. Yeah. It's, um, so my my love hate relationship with Jersey. I know we're doing a lot on New Jersey. I promise this will not all be on New Jersey, but um, it's it rare. That I, it, it's rare that I get the chance to actually talk to somebody <laughs> from Jersey who can speak yeah. intelligently about this. So, <laughs> I my love hate relationship with Jersey started in college when I had a warrant a bench warrant for my arrest in the state of New Jersey. Amazing. So I and I went to college in Virginia. So going from the city to Virginia, I would drive really carefully down sure. 95 through Jersey. I was like, I cannot get pulled over in Jersey. Sure. Um, it was not for anything really super sexy and awesome. I wish it was. It was just because this car dealer and I got in a fucking dispute and he sold me a lemon that I that actually kind of ironically, it shat the bed when I was going to a judo tournament in Quantico. And uh-huh. it shat the bed right outside the gates of Quantico. I don't know if it's still there, but there was this gas station, like must have been less than a thousand meters from the gate. Yeah. And um, and I left the <laughs> I legit left the car there, and I never paid the dealer. And the dealer was like tried to attach my property, but he had no jurisdiction. So the best he could do is put a bench warrant out for me in New Jersey. So I always drove true. very very slowly through Jersey. So that that was a big mark against. I was like, okay, fuck Jersey just for my own personal freedom. Yeah, but. Um, but then I recently drove through North Jersey, which I avoid like the plague because North sure, Jersey, I mean, it's not just suburban. It's also just fucking traffic. Hell, the swamplands of Jersey. Oh, ridiculous. I mean, giant stadiums there. You're close yeah. to the city. You got Lincoln Tunnel. The, and even Siri, Siri loses her mind in North Absolutely. Jersey. She gets all kinds of turned around. And I've, I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been dealing with Siri there for however long Siri's been around and yeah. Siri never gets it right. Siri always like, Oh yeah, I forgot to tell you the exits back that way. You're like, son of a bitch, Siri. Yeah. Every time without fail. But, um, I was driving through Jersey and I, I, instead of going down the turnpike, I was driving along the water's edge and I drove through Edgewater and into Hoboken, which when yeah. I was growing up in the city, I mean, you might as well have said Nevada. Like, I mean, those were, <laughs> sure. you know, like they're just the boondocks, they're boonies out there. 
now I was like, holy shit, I would move to Edgewater. I was like, they've oh, got yeah. like CrossFit gyms there. It's sleek. Everything's really convenient. I was like, yeah. it's right on the water's edge. I was like, shit, that's pretty freaking nice, man. So yeah. I was like, I was like, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think I've found a place in Jersey. I would live if I had to go. live in Jersey. So yeah. Anyway, if you had to, if I had to, if I had if to, had to. Yeah, um, I, I don't, I don't plan on it. It's, it's okay. It is what it is for right now, but would you leave? Would you it's, leave in a heartbeat if you could? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I would love to go out west, like Oregon or Montana, out in the mountains. Um, but that's the thing about Jersey too is that you you really do get a diverse sort of landscape. Where if you go north, there are it's beautiful. The state is beautiful, like as trashy as it can be. Right. You got you have the coast, and then you have the mountains. Um, you do have this dichotomy of it's a weird state it's a very very weird state and not a lot of people know there's actually memes that i've seen where where it talks about the beauty of new jersey and they'll put like the grand canyon it'll be like like driving through the lincoln tunnel it's like the first thing you see in in new jersey and it's like a, a, a video of the grand canyon but the state is genuinely like surprisingly beautiful as trashy as it is it's both it's crazy like I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to draw a very clumsy parallel. Is that I feel like New Jersey is sort of like the Marine Corps, in that it gets more and more beautiful the more you're out of it. Like the further away from it you are, the more you're like, you know, yeah. Jersey's really good. Boy, that's this, and you like to talk about it, and you're like, hey, it's really awesome. When you're there, you're like, son of a bitch. Oh my god, <laughs> yeah. am I you right? Is perfect. there something to that? That's that's perfect. That's perfect. The closer you are getting out of it. The, the more beautiful it is. Yeah. When did, when did you, when did you join the Marines? Were you right out of high school when you joined? No, I, I was a late bloomer. Um, I joined in 2016 and I was 23 years old. Okay. And what prompted you to join then at that point? I, you know, the lore regarding that, it's kind of like the Joker story where it changes, I feel like, over time. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember the central thing was is I had um, a dream that I was serving my country in some capacity. Um, I, I, was, I had this dream. I woke up and I was like, this is something I, I want to pursue. And my cousin was in the debt program for the Marines. And so I said, you know, like, hey, man, I... I'd, I'd like to talk to a recruiter at least just to see like what is going on with this. Mm-hmm. And so I talked to the Marine Corps recruiter and I was like, okay, I, I dig what he's saying. And my mom was mortified and said, well, you should pick another branch. If you're going to join the, the military, you should pick another branch. And like I said before, my, my mom's dad was in the Marine Corps. He, he fought in the Korean war and my dad's, dad was in the air force and he got out right before Vietnam. Mm. And so I knew that I was going to pick one or the other. If I was going to join the military, I was going to follow the legacy of, of one of those guys. And so I went to the air force recruiting office uh, one day with my dad and there was a sign on the door and it said out to lunch, be back in 20. And I was like, I'm good. I got my answer. And so I went back to the Marine Corps recruiter and he actually kind of scummed me pretty hard um, as recruiters do. You know, he, I, I, I scored whatever 
I forget what I got on the ASVAB, high enough to do whatever I want, because that's what he told okay. me. He was like, you can do whatever you want in the Marine Corps. I was like, okay, cool. I want to go kill bad guys. And he was like, no, nah, no, nah, you, you don't have to be infantry. You can, you can do whatever you want. Right. And I was like, I can do whatever I want. Yeah, you can do whatever you want, man. You can be into, you can be this, this, this. I was like, all right, well, if I can do whatever I want, I'd like to be infantry, if that's okay. And he was like, well, I don't have any active duty infantry spots available, but if you really wanted to do a reservist spot and you could go to school, you could go to college. And, th- I, and I swear to you, this is true. I, I don't know if I've ever told any of my buddies this, funny enough. What he told me was, I would do four, four years reserve and the last two years, because reservists are six-year contracts, four years reserves, active reserves, and the last two years of that contract would be active duty. That's what he told me. And I was like, I was a you know, dumb 23-year-old. I was like, sure, man, cool, sounds good. Signed the papers. And when I got to SOI, um, one of my combat instructors was a former recruiter. And I was like, very nonchalantly, like, hey, Staff Sergeant, you know, I was just kind of thinking about the logistics of what my recruiter was saying. And, you know, he was saying this, this, and this. How, how is that going to work? And he was like, bro, he fucking lied to you, like, hardcore lied to you. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm a reservist? He was like, yeah, dude, you're just a reservist for your entire career. Congratulations. And I was like, damn. Yeah. That's so weird. That's yeah. so bizarre. And but yeah. you know something that is it's a really annoying thing with the Marines. And I think it's because when you join the Marines, everyone that wants to fight is joining the Marines. So they lose those combat spots. Army, it's like they'd love it. Hey, go infantry, man, all day yeah. long. But it, but in the Marines, I because I remember when I first tried to join the Marines in the mid-90s, couldn't get an infantry spot. Yeah. And they were like, no, they're like, we could do reserve and you could do logistics. And I was like, and they're like, yeah, yeah, but remember, you'll, you'll still be a Marine. And I'm like, motherfucker, like, I, yeah. I get it. I know there's a lot of advertising behind that, but uh, dude, I want to be infantry. It's so weird how that goes, how that's like such a sexy assignment and it's, yeah. it's harder to get. But what's also really weird is the way that he phrased that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, because like, I'm trying to think even what the upside of that is. Like, do, did he was he getting the sense that you weren't going to join the Marines at all if you couldn't go active duty? Probably. Uh, well, not, not active duty. I, like infantry was my deal breaker. Like that was, that is what I wanted to do. More than um, whether you're reserve or active. Yeah. I didn't care. So like, I, that seems like an unnecessary lie. Like why wouldn't you just say, Hey, you're doing six years as an infantryman in the reserves. Who gives a fuck? Yeah. He, the way he did it was he was, uh, he kind of struck my ego and appealed to my intelligence and was like, you know, you're a smart kid go to go to college while you're in your first years of the reserves and then you can commission as an infantry officer and then go active duty that way and be an infantry officer. Oh, and I was like, oh okay, like fair enough. Like that's what I'll do. That was the plan. And then I after my deployment, I was like, nope, I'm good. I'm I'm checking out as soon as my time card's on I'm done. Okay, I want to get to that because that uh, that begs a lot of questions. Sure. But before I do, let me just set the table a little bit. What were you doing? In life, what was your job before you got into the Marines? I was a barista at Starbucks. And how was that working out for you? Not great. <laughs> <laughs> what did, What were you trying to do? What did you think you were going to do? What was I, how was I wanted to be a, a writer. Yeah. That's what I wanted to do, novelist. So that was an early ambition of yours, was to be a writer. 
Oh yeah. I mean, so the earliest memory I have, um, I don't remember much of my childhood, but the earliest memory I have is about 12 or 13 years old. Um, and my, I had a bunk bed, you know, in my room and the top bunk was the bed. And then underneath was like an open area with a desk. Mm -hmm. And that's where I did my schoolwork. And I remember I had a dream and I woke up from this dream and I was like, I, this is, I got to write this down. Like, this is, this is something here. And so I remember writing it down and the thing that I wrote down has evolved from 12 to now I'm 30 and is, is literally incorporated in the novel that I'm writing at the moment that it has been such a pervasive line throughout my life. And that's like one of my earliest memories of childhood is, is literally like this idea from a dream, like I have to write this down. This is something important. Were other stories coming? Did other stories come? Yeah. uh, Other stories came and they went, um, mostly they went because my, I was raised very religious. Um, my dad was a a non-denominational Protestant pastor. Um, if you're a churchgoer and you know of Calvary chapels, um, my dad was a Calvary pastor. And so the, the, the stories that I was drawn to and the ideas that would come to me were a bit darker, um, not honoring Christ, if you will. And so I felt a lot of guilt and like shame being in that religious culture. And so I would have this idea and I'd write it down and then I'd scrap it and throw it away. Um, But the, the ones that I believe really need to be told have stuck around for many, many years. Do you continue to find new inspiration or are you still trying to mine those and develop them? Uh, yes, both. Um, <clears throat> the way I describe, so I have a notebook that I carry everywhere and an idea will come and I'll write it. That's great. Yeah. And that's the way it is. The, the main idea the the story that like, the seed was planted, like I said, about 12 or 13. The way I look at that story is like a, a kink in the hose. Like I have to unkink that and everything else is going to. Yep. Once I finish that thing, it's, it's everything else will be able to come out. Yeah, that really, um, that resonates a lot with me. That's uh, that I, I used to think of writing as like bank robberies in the heat. Like the way Sarah yeah. would talk about him. He's like, okay, first we do this one, then we do this one. That thing's got to fall. Then this comes through and all that. Yeah. Um, my dad wrote for his whole life trying to tell a story. Yeah. Um, he initially started out writing short stories, but then he fixated on one story and he spent his whole life trying to write it. And he was like, yeah, I'll write other stuff once I get this one done. And it never happened. And mm-hmm. I became less a fan of that after. Uh, because I was like, oh, fuck, probably to my detriment because it gave me ADD. I was like, don't get too fixated. Like, make sure you keep diversifying, diversifying. Like, yeah, like yeah, stuff. yeah. But, um, but it, I totally get that way of thinking that, yeah, you got to, that's a great way of putting it, unkink the hose so you can get that flow going. 
And um, yeah, I think as long as you keep developing other stuff and keep the the muscles fresh and you know all that. Sure. I, I mean, I know what happened. What it would kill me uh, about what my dad did is there was um, the stories became marked in time, not because he was writing for a specific time period, but just you know, the, I think there's certain ebbs and flows to subject matter. Sure, it isn't always not just relevant, but life moves past it. And by the sure. time he really had something, I ended up publishing some of his short stories after he died because he never got it all published. Mm. And I was like, it's dated, man. It's it, This would have been great in 1965. Sure. It was just, it it lost its loop in the universe. It was just, I was off kilter. I don't know. I, I, so I, but you saying that kind of sparked all that in me. I, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a completely relatable way of doing it. And I'm rooting for you. That's, that's a, because that's a fucking, that's a fucking great feeling to be able to unkink that hose and actually get oh, the yeah. thing out there. How close are you to having it done? Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. I got about 20,000 words. Done. Yeah. Um, that's, I, I don't really look at it like, uh, I have an idea of how it's going to be, but it could be longer. It could be because in truth, um, when you were talking about like the cycles of, of life, <clears throat> the story has evolved from what it was. I mean, the idea that started it to where it is now, if I didn't, if, I, if there's a dream sequence within the novel, okay, when I was a kid, I had a dream. I told you, I wrote it down. And the dream was I was sitting in front of a table, um, like a Norman Rockwell painting. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, there's, instead of like food, there's, there's body parts all over this table. And there's a woman in a, in a burlap dress with like branches, you know, coming out of her head like antlers. Mm -hmm. And she's got like a burlap strip over her eye. That was the dream. That was this, that was what started this thing. Mm -hmm. And it is literally a dream sequence within this novel and it serves as a vehicle for another mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. But there were various things that dominoes that had to fall in my life for me to unlock mm -hmm. different parts of this story. Um, and I think that they've all fallen. So I think that now it's just going to be a matter of finishing it. Um, because it is something that I've put on the back burner and then something would happen. Like joining the Marine Corps was a huge key to the story. And then I work on it and put it on the back burner and then going to Afghanistan was a huge key and then so on and so forth. Um, and I think they've all fallen. And so I think it's only just a matter of time before it's done. When you left high school, did you think a writing career was imminent or were you like hey i'm just gonna pay my dues do whatever i have to do to survive and just try to find a way to write like what was your what was your game plan coming out of high school um <clears throat> i was very naive coming out of high school sure. uh, as everyone is you know um and i i looked at my writing I looked at it as eminent, yes. And I looked at it in the same way that a 19-year-old girl going to Hollywood to make it big looks at her burgeoning acting career. 
I was like, all I got to do is wait tables at a restaurant and Stephen King's going to walk in and be like, hey, you look like a writer. Do you have a manuscript? And I'm like, I, you know what? I do. It's in the back <laughs> And, and <clears throat> that is what I thought it would be. Um, but like I said, life, I believe that life guides you to where you mm. need to be. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be as sharp as a writer as I am now without the experiences that I've gone through for sure. Um, and I think that including those as being a, a, a starving writer, including your time as a barista and writing. Oh yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. That was foundation, yeah. foundational. Were you studying uh, at the collegiate level or, or taking extra classes or doing anything or were you just writing? I was just writing. I mean, I would take like, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do at the time. I didn't know as far as like a backup plan, the parachute, right? right? right. And so I was doing gen ed courses at my local community college just to have something, you know? Um, and that was really what, that was really what inspired. I had an English teacher who was great. I mean, my first, the first poem I ever wrote that was not for an assignment was written because of him. And it had nothing to do with, I mean, <clears throat> I'll never forget this, to be honest with you, because I, it was one of those moments that I found incredibly hilarious for no reason. And we were talking about um, minority groups and, and, and artists from different minority groups. And we were covering um, poets at the time. And he had come into class and said, today, we're going to talk about lesbian poetry. I said, like... Oh, that sounds kinky. Like, right. <laughs> okay. And then he proceeded to read these pieces that were just like, they were just poems right. who were written by a lesbian. You know, they were right. just like, right. And so I thought like, what does that like? That's what does that have to do with lesbian poetry? So I sat down afterwards the next day um, at home and I wrote a lesbian poem. Um, which was, you know, graphic and it was a, you know, whatever, but that was the first real poem that I wrote. And it, it was like, oh, I, I could do this. Like, I, I really could, I could do this. And cause it was a joke poem, obviously. Right. Um, <clears throat> because I, I truly just could not understand like the dichotomy. I was like, what does her, what does her like loving to eat pussy have to do with the creative work? And I wanted to write something as a joke. And I was like, no, I can, I can do this seriously. Like I, I got it. So that's, that is funny. That's so that's how that opened up the art form to you was yeah. first as a lark and then going, Oh shit, this is actually a really amenable art form. Oh yeah. Me. It's a game. Yeah. I, I look yeah. at poetry like a game. It's, it's a, it's a game and the rules can change. And that's the beauty of it is that you can, write a Shakespearean sonnet in iambic pentameter and you could you could follow Bukowski's line of poetry, which is very much like conceptual is the way I would describe it. Mm -hmm. And it's all beautiful. It's all like that's the that's the thing about poetry is it's all beautiful in its own right. Um it's a malleable art form. Truly. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it, now when you're 23 and you're five years roughly into being a barista mm. and working on stuff, 
uh, were you writing every day at this point? I mean, what's your, uh, how are you feeling? What's your life consisting of? What's your battle rhythm day in, day out at that point? Yes. Um, pretty much I would write at night. I was in a relationship. Uh, so I would, you know, go on dates and come back and write and I would go to work. And sometimes I'd write at work. Um, and in, in my hometown, it would get like incredibly busy during the summer months. It's a tourist trap. And so in the summertime, it was very tightly wound, so to speak, excuse me. And like my time was just spent working. And that is, it, it sort of opened up the, the fall time for me. So like, like September mm-hmm. to November, that's, that's my golden hour. That's, that is when I'm the most creative. It is when um, most of the work gets written. It's the, my best, like my best writing is done in those months. And I think it's just that muscle memory of time and, you know, the, the season changes and it's beautiful outside. And um, so, and so in the summer you? months, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say in the summer months, the, the writing sort of stopped. And that's been a, a benchmark for me as like an accordion. Huh. Yeah. Where were you at emotionally then at 23 before you joined? Were you like, I'm sick of this shit? Were you disillusioned? Were you bitter? Were you anxious? Were you, what was going on for you at that point? In terms of like writing? In terms of life. Yeah. Writing mm-hmm. as well. But I mean, yeah, I mean, all of it, you know, I mean, what, what was the, what was the inciting incident that guy drew you to go, hey, I need to make a radical life change. That's a good question. I don't, I, I think, I think what I was feeling at the time was incomplete. Like I, I'm very emotionally aware. And mm. I think I knew almost like when you write a character and you know that you're going to to break their heart you know that you know that the character has to go through something in order to crack open and evolve right like a seed has to explode in order for a tree to be born and i i was very acutely aware that i was complete i was missing some element and i think what i was missing was the tenacity i think would be the right word of being a Marine. There is a unique culture within the Marine Corps um, that looking back now, well, how could I not have, how could I not enjoy the Marine Corps? But at the time, I didn't know what it was. I, I just knew that I was looking for something. And I just, I truly just got lucky enough to find it when I did. Was there a desire to kind of get dirt under your nails also as an yeah, artist? 100%. Yeah. 100%. It's so funny. I see that. I was talking about this recently with some of the folks at Vet Rep where we were like um, running into young male actors mm. and young female actors. You you bring in actresses and like, oh my God, all of them, just so much, so much talent. They're right. They're emotionally available right away. Young yeah. guys, not so much. Very hard to find. You can see talent. But the emotional availability isn't there. And I'll, I'll, the best I could think about it is I was like, I think 
in some of their cases, they haven't experienced enough life yet to be able to access the emotions they're being asked to to have. And yep. I know for me, I was, I'm, if I were acting now, I'd be infinitely better than I was when I was acting because you need that life. You need something to grade against. I think it's just crucial for an artist. I think it's crucial for a creative artist, not an inter, I mean, interpretive artist as well, but it's sure. a creative artist. Like, <clears throat> you're building worlds. Like you gotta, you, there has to be something that, that you're, you know, can, can rub off on you in a way that is meaningful. Yeah. I, I think that it's, it's almost like, uh, it's like I was saying with the dominoes that they, you have, they have to fall in such a way um, because you, you then understand, you know, like if (laughs) I remember reading um, back when Tumblr was alive and well, um, and I would like my writing was on Tumblr and stuff. And I remember seeing a picture of somebody's Google search and it was like, what is the effects of cocaine? And the caption was, I am a writer. And I remember Uh, thinking like, that is truly it. Like there are things that you don't know and you have to do research on, but for the most part, like you can go out and collect these experiences. And I'm, I'm great. I mean, it's, it's a blessing and a curse. Because I, I got the experiences, but they've come with different elements to it that, that make life interesting, you know? And, and unintended consequences, right? Sure. Things that you're like, never could have anticipated. Absolutely. But there is some, and I think, I mean, from Orwell to Hemingway, I mean, it just, writers have to have lived a little. It's hard yeah. to be that person that just came out of the fucking womb with a ton of great stories. Like, I, Absolutely. I don't know, man. I don't know if that happens, you know? Um, when you got into boot camp, how did it feel? Did it feel like coming home? Did it feel like this is a good shock to the system? Did it still feel healthy or did it feel like eh, this is maybe a bridge too far? You know, <laughs> it felt great for a while. And um, I don't know if, if you remember that scandal that happened a few years back with the Marine recruit who was stuffed into a dryer and who later unfortunately committed suicide no this is back in this is back in 2016 i think his name was uh sadiq i think that was his last name or that might have been his first name i don't remember um that was my company in boot camp um this this kid got hazed pretty bad and unfortunately committed suicide uh within the first month i believe of boot camp and so that kind of rocked the boat a little bit for everybody because everybody was like, the reality of what we were getting into became immediately present. And then it was followed up with our drill instructors got fired. Um, my senior drill instructor was facing 20 years in the brig for hazing. And I remember thinking, exactly that like this is a bridge too far like what did i get myself into i thought marines were supposed to protect other marines i thought we were supposed to take care of each other and here my this guy that i looked up to like a father was getting thrown to the wolves for something that wasn't even his fault and i was like they like i was very aware that the marine corps was preserving its public image and i thought naively but 
I thought I was getting into the Pacific where men were men and we were going to fight and hook and jab and we had each other's backs and fuck the system and fuck the man. It's us out in the dirt. Let's get it. And that depressed the hell out of me. I really was like, damn, like, what did I do? Um, but that faded. Once I got to my unit, that was gone. Were you excited then or were you <clears throat> still a little deer in the headlights? I mean, what, 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 was, what turned things around for you and where was your head at once you got to your unit? I think just going like going through infantry school was a, a big title shift in terms of like, okay, this is what I was looking for. Like this is your entry level running and gunning. Um, and that's what I wanted from my time in the Marines. Uh, so I was like, yeah, let's get it. And then when I got to my unit, <clears throat> my squad leader was a three time. Um, and this is, fairly rare in the reserves. He was a three-time veteran of Afghanistan. He was in Afghanistan three times, three different tours. And right before I deployed, my platoon sergeant was a, he was in Ramadi three times, I believe. So we had dudes who like, like legit chopped up bad guys in the Middle East who were like, you're going to get trained and it's going to be hard and it's going to suck. And I was like, Get some, like, let's go. Like that's, that's what I wanted. And so it really what like my unit, I mean, like, I love those guys to death. Like truly there, there is no, in my opinion, there are no greater examples of the best that this country has to offer. Like they are just the the finest people I think I'll ever meet. Um, and I, I got very lucky, is what I'll say, because the other platoons, no offense, were not as good as mine. They, they just, they, the camaraderie was not the same. The level of training wasn't the same. I just happened to get put in exactly where I needed to be. What was it like for you coming back as a reservist and now suddenly being plunged back into the civilian world, but now as a Marine and you're back to the same old friends, same old environment and all that? Did you feel like, you wanted to be more in the Marine world. And it's, this was kind of like, ah, oh, son of a bitch. I'm right back here again. Or was it a letdown? Like where, where was your head at when coming back home? Um, it kind of, I kind of rode the coattails of, you know, like the new guy boot bravado that you get when you come out of boot camp of like, I could literally fight anyone and come out on top. And so at first it was fine. Like at first I was like, yeah, I'm a Marine. What about it? Like that's, you should thank me. Yeah. So like the, the boot bravado kind of carried me over for like the first year. And then after the second year, I was like, okay, um, this, this kind of is what it is, but there were, there were rumors at that time as well. Cause we had just gotten back from ITX. And there were rumors that we were slated for a deployment to Afghanistan. And so that kind of peaked it up a little bit where I was like, okay, like maybe Mm -hmm. we're good. Maybe Mm -hmm. I'll get my time in the sun. And then eventually we did um, deploy. And coming back from that deployment was very difficult. That was incredibly difficult because I went from – being in Helmand province to working at a GNC in South Jersey in the course of 
a month and a half. Sure. Sure. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't like to totem pole myself, uh, with dudes that are active duty. Cause I think that everybody who serves the, this country, regardless of what branch or what MOS you hold, like you're a rock star in my opinion, but the advantage of active duty is also its curse in that you are active duty. So you're there, you deploy, and then you go back to being there. Whereas I deployed and went back to my civilian life with very little yeah. time to figure out what the hell was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it was, it was very, it was a difficult uh, couple of years. I mean, I, I came back in 2019 and I feel like I'm just now starting to let the dust settle a bit. It, it took uh, quite a bit of time for me to figure it out. Before you deployed to Afghanistan, what was happening with the writing now that you are a Marine and okay, mm-hmm. you're doing one weekend a month or whatever, but I mean, just the writing, did you find it starting to take more of a back burner? Did you feel like yeah. it was? Okay. Yeah. And, and, and the reason it was, <clears throat> um, is I felt like it wasn't cool anymore. Like my, my perception of cool had changed and it was no longer mm-hmm. cool to be creative. It was now cool to, you know, go shooting with your friends or go yeah. to the bar and go, go to fight clubs or do jujitsu or whatever it was. That was the new cool. And then I came across um, Dead Reckoning Collective in 2017 when they, like, when they, I had heard about them when they first started. Um, and I was like, oh no, okay, it's, I can do both. I, yeah. I can do both. Um, and then it, it picked back up right before. Right before I deployed, it picked back up. I did a lot of writing on deployment. A lot of um, I wrote a lot of poems um, about being in country on deployment, and then it's just it hadn't stopped since then. It's just kind of gone. Did you while you were on deployment? So first off, let's talk about going on deployment. I'm assuming you were pretty excited to finally go. Stoked. Yeah. Oh yeah. When you touched down, um, I'm assuming you went to Kandahar and then exiled from there out to whatever yeah. club you're on. In hell. Yeah. Um, how'd that feel creatively? Was there? How were your first poems in country? How was your writing when you first started picking up the pen there? Was it still really adrenalized or was it a sense of wonder? What was going on for you? It was both. Um to be honest with you, I remember writing a lot. Um, there was a sign as we were leaving. Um, might have been Arabjan or Al. I think it was Camp Arabjan in Kuwait. Uh, mm-hmm. As we were getting ready to fly into uh, Forab, which is the old Camp Leatherneck, or it's the new Camp Leatherneck. Right. Um. And there was a sign that said farewell or take care or something like that. And I remember I had a you know little moleskin thing and I kept it as a diary. And I remember writing, you know, that it it felt like um both like angels singing triumphantly and the cold slam of a jail cell, like uh. a death sentence, you know, like it it felt both at the same time. This like take care 
of like, all right, like you're about to go do it. But then it was also like, Hey, like get fucked. Um, a great and it was, it, yeah, yeah it, it was, it really was, like I said, it was in a pivotal and vital domino to fall. It, it, it truly was. I wouldn't be half of the man nor the creative that I would be without those experiences um, out there. Didn't just truly. When was it that you got to Afghanistan? What year was it? 2018 or 2019? 2018. Yes. September, 2018. Okay. Um, when you <clears throat> actually got into, you found your battle rhythm in, yeah. in Helmand. Um, what was it? What were you guys doing? What were you engaged in? Were you doing patrols yeah. still or what was going on for you guys? Yeah. So we would do patrols, uh, security patrols, Every day, every other day, uh, mostly we were, we were glorified sec four is what we were. Um, that was the tasking order. So we stood post, um, went to the gym, did patrols, went to the gym. Like that was, that was life for seven months. Um, we had a very uneventful in terms of, of contact. Uh, uneventful deployment. I mean, the most that we got was, you know, mortar and rocket fire. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but it was, I mean, it was very busy where we were. I, so we were on a little combat outpost. My platoon was um, about a click south of Lashkarga. Oh, yeah. And so okay. it was just us. You know, it was a platoon of dudes and rotating from post to guardian angel missions to uh, QRF missions. And then you'd get a little bit of sleep after the gym mm-hmm. and then you'd, you'd wake up, you know, mm-hmm. after three, four hours, do it all over again. Um, what so was it was going- very, it was. Yeah, sorry. Ooh, go, go ahead. Finish out what you were saying. I was just going to say, it was just nonstop for yeah. Yeah. seven months. What was going, do you, did you understand what was going on at that time that you guys weren't being engaged heavier? And you weren't running into stuff. Do you know what was going on at that time? It was right around when uh, the push for peace with the Taliban was occurring. Yeah, and there were two things that were were going on, and I, and one I can't substantiate. So take it for what it is. But there was a rumor going around that the um, commanding officer of the combat outpost was in line for a promotion and you know because where, where you where we were you would see at night tracer fire i mean you mm-hmm. could you could hit targets from your post mm-hmm. that's how close they were taliban is engaging with the a and a the ap and there were several attempts to coerce our leadership to like go out and get these guys mm-hmm. and the rumor was that the commanding officer was in line for promotion and did not want to risk jeopardizing it with wounded or dead Marines. Um, I don't know if that's true. I think really what it was, was just the political climate of the time. Um, I think it was just not, it, it was, we, where we were, we were not in line. My company um, was attacked 
um, a, a pretty significant attack by the Taliban uh, in early March, I believe. I think the 3rd of March, uh, Camp Shorab was attacked. Um, and that was incredibly disheartening. What was it? Was it was it a complex attack? Was it ground assault? What was it? Ground assault. Um, okay. Yeah. And from what I understand, it, it was uh, Duck Hunt, you know, the video game Duck Hunt. From what my, my, my boys that were there, um, that you just, they were on the wall. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a perfect combat action ribbon. Perfect. It, you could not have asked for a better time as an infantry Marine because no one got hurt and therefore no one died. Mm-hmm. And my boys got some. And so it's like, you, you could not have written it better. All the glory um, and none of the ghosts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How did you feel? Oh, I was pissed. Man. Yeah. I was like, damn, yeah. like, go fucking figure. Like, like yeah. go figure. Yeah. Um, and at that point coming at, towards the end of your deployment, I mean, you got to start doing the math and going, okay, what are my odds of getting back here and getting some? And yep. How were you feeling? I mean, obviously you gave it away that, you know, you were kind of ready to call it a career after that deployment, but what was going on as your deployment wrapped up for you? Were you thinking, um, had it just been a disappointment from top to bottom? Was it demoralizing? Like what, what exactly was it that was getting under your skin? Yeah, I think it was just, I, I knew, I knew immediately after coming home that I would never step foot in country again there, there for reservists, the deployment rhythm is, is not that way. It's, it's once every four years, I believe. And so I knew my time in the sun was over. I knew that the thing that I signed up to do would never take place. And so I was, I was very bitter um, in many many different ways systemically at the Marine Corps as a whole um, at myself for joining, you know, like being so full. I was like, oh man, like, of course, like this is what you wanted to do. You did this and this is how it panned out. Like, look at you. Um, Why were you pissed at the Marine Corps? What did the Marine Corps do that pissed you off? Nothing. I mean, it's just immature, you know, immaturity. I think at the time of like, I felt that they had sold me a bill of goods or you know, mm-hmm. they wrote a check that they didn't cash, and it's it was immaturity. I think that as I've, um, I got out in February, um, and being out and having distance from the system, and even having that those those years outside of Afghanistan, I've, I've realized that like it's it is what it is. There's, there's really, you don't get to control your life when you join the Marine Corps. You don't get to pick mm-hmm. your duty assignments. You don't get to pick mm-hmm. your deployments. It, it just is what it is. And you have to accept it. And so I just, I said, well, instead of being angry about this for the rest of my life and, you know, commiserating at the VFW, I'm just going to accept it and move on. And I did. I mean, for the most part, I still think about it every now and again, but for the most part, it's, 
I just look at it with, with fond memories of like, it is what it is. What did it mean for you when you got out? Just walking around the streets, going back and trying to do the writing, mm. you know, um, I know that the temptation to be nostalgic and the temptation to, you know, um, not sit on your laurels, but kind of take a moment just to reflect and acknowledge what you did and the commitment, the sweat, the blood, the tears, all that stuff, you know, that, that can, you know, you can start to get regrets. You can start, you know, a lot of stuff can go through your head. What, what was your experience going through all that? I think, you know, after I got out, I, it's kind of like we talked about new with New Jersey, perfect analogy. Cause I looked at it with fondness. You know, I looked at it with like, I mean, I remember when I drove off base for the last time, I mean, I cried the whole way home. I loved, yeah. I loved being in rain. I mean, it was, I loved it. And I look back at it as one of the loves of my life that is in the past. And, and it's not like we didn't have a messy breakup. Just things have to end sometimes. That's a part of being alive is things come to an end and there is pain in that. Um, but it really did um, open up writing in, in a different way where I could. Because I, I started writing poetry or I started putting poetry out on Instagram. Uh, about a year before I checked out um, <clears throat> and I kind of, I kept it low key. I didn't put my mm-hmm. name to it. Right. Um, and a couple of the guys that I <clears throat> was in charge of actually were like, would follow this page, you know, that, that mm. and I was like, well, that's kind of weird. Um, and I noticed that when I got out, the, the writing had shifted from commiserating and, and talking about these experiences to fonder memories, looking back and like um, deeper appreciation for what it meant to serve, what it meant to be a leader, what it meant to be a part of something bigger than myself. Um, and it, it's the shift. I think you need, I think you need to have something like that to make the shift. Cause I think that good writing is what's the word evocative. And in order to evoke, you have to show the horror of the, you have to show the muck and the mud and the, the worms, because if you don't, then you don't appreciate the sunshine and the, the blue mm-hmm. jays. You, you just yep. don't. Yep. Um, and and I think having that circle being completed um, really just it, like I said that was one of those dominoes that I to check. I couldn't I could not be a lifer. I couldn't. It's, it was not part of my story. And once that domino fell, it was a huge a huge revelation in terms of how writing should be done. It's really interesting. Your writing. Mason's writing probably the two most prominent examples I can think of that articulate the agony of not having a combat badge Mm. or combat ribbon. And I think the fact that both of you were infantrymen 
and both of you served at roughly the same time period. <laughs> and there's nothing you can do about it. It's not your call. All you can do is go where you're sent, and the bad guys get a vote too. And if they don't show up, they don't show up. And not a lot you can do Absolutely. about that, right? Um, but nonetheless, just that that I think there's an interesting dynamic for non-combat veterans. I think of the statistics, you know, when they talk about the suicide rates and all that, it's mm-hmm. way more non-combat veterans than combat veterans. And I don't, I mean, we can talk about that. I don't have any sort of empirical answers as to why I think that is. I can mildly speculate, but I do think there's a deeply underreported calamity of lost glory or a chance or, or just one, you know, you went all that way. You're fucking there, man. You're in Hellman. Be nice if we showed up for a fight. Like, motherfucker, Absolutely. I came all this way I, uh, yeah. to get my fight, right? You know, and I think there's, I, I, I think that's something that I think it's hard for a lot of people to appreciate. And it, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to ramble in search of a question here, but that's um, okay. I'm going to try to throw out enough threads for you to pick up on. I've been thinking a lot lately about how there's no cultural, we don't have a cultural language in this country for war to understand and process war the way that the GWAT has been because Mm -hmm. all of our language has been steeped in the Vietnam era. Hey, my country sold me out. I never wanted to go. I just want to smoke reefer, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no man, the GWAT, we wanted to go fight. So if you didn't get it, we don't have the language. We haven't built the cultural lexicon to process those emotions because there's nothing in our recent culture allows us to to go, oh yeah, that's what I was feeling. You go through a breakup, there's a million fucking songs on the radio for it. But you go <laughs> yeah. through that, there's yeah. nothing. You know, there's nothing to say, hey man, you were right there, fist cocked, and the other yeah. dude just never showed up. Like, what can you do? And I guess um le- in search of a question, let me let me throw this out to you as the poet. Mm-hmm. What's what's your take on or what what would be the best way to explain to somebody like a loved one of an immediate family member who doesn't get it to explain why that is why there's a little bit of agony in that and why that's sometimes even harder to process than combat that's a good question i've been i've been searching for the right words for a few years now um I th- I think what it comes down to, you know, you you take a dog and you put it in a cage. Not even a dog. You take a lion and you put it in a cage, and you run along, you know, the bars with a stick. You piss it off and you poke it and you prod it, and the lion's like, "All right, I'm getting really mad." And the minute you let me out of this cage, I'm going to tear everything to pieces. And the lion looks at other lions that have been released, running free and wild. And he's like, I'm going to get my time and I'm just going to tear shit to pieces. And then the cage never opens. And so you, you do have this pent up. It is, it is more than aggression. It's, it's more than, it's not hatred but it's more than aggression. You have this pent up. It's your identity. It's who you are. Yes. 
You know, you are literally primed. You're wired. You're told you are no longer a human. You are a machine of death. You are, your purpose is to inflict violence and death. That is what your, your job is that your identity is that you're a kid. Like, I mean, in the Marine Corps, you'd have staff sergeants come up to you like, Hey, what's up killer? Like, that's what they would call you killer. You know, one of the, one of the responses Marines give is kill. Right. <laughs> and, right. and it, it is this, I, it is so deeply ingrained within the warrior that when you don't have a war to go to, or you worse, I think, because I, I think that my junior Marines who did not deploy, who were just reservists the whole time, I think that they're going to have an easier time because they didn't step foot in the country. Right, right. You know, it is, it is very much this lion is just waiting and the cage, you know, it's just the cage gets unlocked, but it doesn't get open, you know? And for the sake of the metaphor, the, the lion can't manipulate anything to, to, it has, the cage has to be open for this thing to run free. And the, the lion watches the lock come off and he's like, all right, like any day now, any day. And then a couple months go by and the lock goes back on. And then you have to, you have to reconcile it. I, I think that it, to be blunt, I think that it, it will, it, it, it can. If you're not careful, it can kill you, um, truly. That identity of you're a killer, you're a warrior with no war. If you don't reconcile that and you don't process that and accept your, the stakes of what happened and what you're doing now, and you don't put that to bed, it can be very detrimental, I think. Because it was for me for a while, truly. I wonder if there's also another aspect of identity, which is self-knowledge. Mm. The lure of combat, not, not even as an act of hatred or bloodlust even, but just as an act of self-knowledge. Hey, what would I do if I was in that situation? Yeah. You're one of the few that, gets to, that would get to answer that and go, well, this yeah. is what I did. And I know exactly what I'm made of, right? I, yeah. I feel like that's a big part of it, especially for that- guys. Never That's been a girl, excellent. so I don't know what girls think of, but I feel like for guys, sure. like you want to know, like the peak of your maleness is like, what would I do if, well, this is your chance to answer that. And to not get sure. that answered, I feel like leaves chips on the table. Like you don't yeah. know. You're like, I don't know. I went all this way, but I never got that answered. Right? A little bit. Yeah. I think that's spot on. I think it's because I think every, I think everyone has to go through a rite of passage. And for the warfighter, the rite of passage is the war. And so, you know, it's, it's, that is how you show yourself worthy of being considered a warrior um, would be the traditional narrative. I, I disagree with that, but that's the traditional narrative. You know, like, um, you know, if you're a warrior without a war, what are you? And I think to be able to prove yourself in combat, for an infantryman, there is no greater. That is it. That is the pinnacle. That is what, that is once you do that, then it's about rank. If you're staying in, like what rank am I going to get next? I've done, I've done what I, what I signed up to do. What's next. Um, You said you disagreed with that warfighter um, archetype. Yeah. What, 
How do you talk to me about what you think? How do you process this? I mean, I think the, the, the being a warrior is a state of mind. It's a state of being. Um, so I can wake up like I did today early, have a garage gym. I can impose, you know, if, um, if I can steal a line from Jocko, impose discipline, you know, um, that is my war. My war is with myself. It's, it's with my, with, with myself every day. And I don't need to conquer an enemy. I don't need to like raise a village, you know, I don't need mm-hmm. to lay waste. Going to the gym when I don't want to is a battle. That's a battle. And doing that and succeeding, okay, I crushed the workout, did deadlifts. That is victory. And I think that now as a civilian, it's a battle of inches every day. It's a battle of inches of, am I going to do what I'm supposed to do? Or am I going to fuck off and be lazy? Am I going to spend time with my family? Or am I going to, you know, isolate? Am I going to call my friends? Or am I going to just like hope for the best? And you can wage war with those little moments now. And that is the, that's the war that we face, I think. And, and so if we're fighting that war, then we are. I am still a warrior. Yeah. It's that sense of identity that transcends just whether or not you're in the military. Sure. Yeah, it's lifelong. I, I think that that's why they say once a Marine, always a Marine, which is something else I disagree with because I'm not in the Marine Corps anymore. I was. But I think that I'll always... I will always have what the Marine Corps gave me, which is that fighting spirit. Um, and so you, you identify what is, what is next. Now that I'm here, what is next? Okay, well, I'm going to go back to school. And you begin to assault in that direction. I want to be a really good dad. I don't have kids. I'm just using this as an example. Um, and you assault in that direction where I want to be a good mom or a good wife or a good husband or a good neighbor or a good employee, a good boss. And whatever your target and objective is, you're a warrior. So you're going to assault and you're going to conquer that and 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 secure that objective. And then when you get there, you identify the next one and you do that until you're old and wrinkly and it was a good fight. That's that's how that is if I could have an one thing on my tombstone, it was a good fight would be on there because that's how I look at life. When you sit down to write now, do you feel like the valve is purged? Like you're like, Hey, I don't feel like I have to prove myself. I don't feel like a desire for the physical. I'm like, I can sit here. I can focus. My mind is clear. I'm very comfortable just writing kind of got it out of my system. Is there that sense? That is a great question. Sometimes, yes. If I'm doing the right things, like today, so I'll be writing um, when we wrap up. Um, I'm, I got a target of about a thousand words for today, and I'm gonna crush that shit. Let me tell you, because I've I've knocked off um, everything I have to do. I went to the gym, had a good workout. Once when I do the things that I know I need to do, the writing comes easy. If I don't, it's harder. 
Like if I know that I'm leaving something on the table, it's, I'm like, I'm very ADD. So I'm like, I, mm-hmm. I, I gotta do that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you write every day? I try to, um, I go through periods. Um, I am afflicted with like a deep seated loathing of what I write, (laughs) you know, like I, and, but I, the thing is, is I love to write. I love to, um, for me, it's like, uh, I read a book when I was deployed called catching the big fish by David Lynch. And it was about, you know, priming the mind for ideas. And he relates cinema, but I'll use it in writing uh, as dreaming, mm-hmm. you know, go, like you go into another world and man, I love that process. The ideas, I love the ideas. And I think that I love them so much that when I see them on a page, I'm like, that's just not quite right. Mm-hmm. And I just, I have to, I'll put it aside for a bit and then I'll come back to it. Um, and so I ebb and flow, I'll write every day for a month and then I'll put it away for a couple of weeks and then I'll write every day for a month. Um, and that's kind of how it's been. And when you're writing, are you writing the same piece? Are you working on the same project or is it just writing, putting pen to paper and Hey, if a poem comes out today, a poem comes out today. Yeah. It's, it's mostly the same, the, mostly the novel. Is, is what's getting chipped away at. Um, but the, the short story uh, that I read um, was I sat down to write the novel and something else came out. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, you do that then. Um, sometimes it is a poem. Poems usually are, um, if I'm waiting in line somewhere, like I said, I have a notebook and those are usually what comes then. Um, or like if I'm if I get a particularly deep burst of inspiration, like if I see something like particularly beautiful, or if I have like an idea that I want to capture and it's not has nothing to do with the, the the novel, that's usually a poem. Do you hate your poetry when you write? I hate it? everything I write. Really, I really do uh, everything I do because I really like. <laughs> <laughs> I I wrestled with putting stuff out on Instagram for a long time um, because I am in desperate need of validation, and uh. so I did I did not want to stoke the fire. Um, I I was like I don't I didn't want to post anything because it's was like what if they hate it? But the more horrifying thought is well, what if they love it? Then what do I do? Like, what if I just knock it out of the park, the first poem, and I get 10,000 followers and a million likes, and then I got to, ne- what's the next piece going to be? What if they hate, the, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I, I come off, I play it off like I don't care. Uh, I do deeply, and I, I don't know. I think it's something from, I think like when I was talking about earlier with that mentality of religion, being pervasive over my artistic expression as a kid, I think there are still remnants of that. And so I think it's, it's not so much hatred maybe as it is still guilt, you know, mm. 
uh, of, of childhood of feeling like I'm letting the big man in the sky down. I meant to ask that actually, it's a question I've asked a couple of people when it mm-hmm. seemed appropriate on the show before, when you deployed in the back of your mind someplace, was there ever the mm-hmm. idea that, Hey, if something happens to me over here, mm-hmm. it's really going to suck. Not just because it sucks to get tagged, but mm-hmm. on top of it, I'm never going to get to do my book. I'll never get this workout. Was there ever that sense of like, son of a bitch, that would really fucking suck. Question. No. Um, not then, but I have thought that like looking back, I thought, man, it's a right. good thing. Right. Cause this is a great idea. And like, it's a we. I have a weird love hate relationship because I love, like I said, I love the idea, and I'm like, that is such a good thing that I get to still tell this story because, you know, where would it go? Like, yeah. where does where does an idea does it is it alive? Like, is right. it just die with me? Um, not in the moment though. No, definitely in in hindsight. Interesting. I meant to ask also, what was your writing like? when you came back how was it different did you notice a difference was it just subject matter was it tone was it perspective what was how did it change um it became more grounded so my my writing before was ethereal um like i i believe in abstraction um the novel that i'm working on is a horror novel and the reason it's a horror novel is because you can take an idea like this is not what it's about. I'm just going to do this Mm -hmm. live. You can take an idea about love or loss. And if you sit with that idea and you think like, okay, well, what does that feel like? Loss is total is overwhelming. It's like a being stabbed in the heart with an electric toothbrush. You know, it's just like this deep vibratory sense of total all encompassing pain and so if you sit with that long enough and you think okay well what what else could feel like that? and you just abstract something long enough you'll come to a point where you have your movie monster so to speak and it doesn't have to be a, a frankenstein's prometheus it doesn't have to be freddy krueger but you can have something that is horrific and tell two stories at the same time. And that's what's fun for me is you can tell a straightforward story. Like Stephen King's it is about a clown alien who kills kids, but it's also about generational trauma. It's also about child neglect. It's also about, you know, like developmental um, psychology and growing up as a kid. And you can tell two different stories at the same time with horror. And my writing before was up here. It was flowery language. It wasn't really grounded. It was more conceptual. It was abstracted still, but it was conceptual where after I got to use your term, which I love and I'm stealing uh, dirt under my fingernails, um, it became more grounded because, you know, I got to see what it was like um, 
in a different country, in, in arguably a different world. Like if you told me Afghanistan was on a different planet and right. we didn't fly there, we took a rocket ship, I believe you. And when you see that, it, it, it does humble you in, in many ways. And I think it humbled me quite a bit in my writing where I wasn't so pretentious. I was more level-headed where I could still tell a scary story that is twofold. Actually, it's manifold, but that's yeah. irrelevant. Um, but it's with, with grittier language, more grounded language, more grounded imagery, and less conceptual and douchey, for lack of a better <laughs> term. <laughs> yeah. So when you say it was ethereal, was it ethereal in terms of it, like you're not even capturing a setting, you're really just like in the fucking clouds? Or was it like you were writing specifically about the concept as opposed to telling a story that would allow you to see the concept like yeah, that? It, so it, it was more like it was less storytelling and describing the, the general feeling, mm, you know, yeah, of, yeah. of what it was where now it's like very boots on the ground. You know where you are. You know where the characters are. You know where they're going. You know what they're dealing with. You know what they're thinking. Um, I love it, man. I love it. I, I, I really have to walk it back because I really do love this piece. The idea <laughs> is just, it's so good. I, I'm really happy with it. I just, I hate it immediately after I'm done writing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's, I think that's normal. I think that's normal. I sometimes maybe not right after writing it. Mm. Sometimes right for writing it, but sometimes I think also um, like the next day you come in, you're like, man, I thought I was on fire yesterday, but this is actually yeah. fucking shit, man. What? Yeah. What are you trying to say? You know? Yeah. Um, did you feel that through the military, let's just wrap up your whole military experience as one big mm-hmm. package. Did you, did you feel like you got a better sense of some emotional truth so that when you're writing, there's a greater sense of, and I'm just throwing shit out here, mm-hmm. uh, stress, fatigue, um, isolation, mm-hmm. disappointment, like just a lot of like emotional truths are a bit more accessible to you. Cause you're like, have kind of seen some of the extremes of humanity and I oh, kind yeah. of internalize that and mind that a little bit now. Yeah. I mean, I think that you really do. You get to see the best and the worst of humanity. Um, you get to see the, again, the beauty and the horror. You, you don't get to appreciate the one without the other. And I mean that both ways, you don't appreciate the horror for what it is. Um, and you don't appreciate the beauty without the, without the other. Um, and I think that gathering those experiences and, and sort of putting them in the proverbial toolbox of the mind, mm-hmm. it's allowed me to get a good sense of what the characters if they go through that, I'm like, I don't know how to write that because I felt that yeah. I could describe that. Cause I know what that's like. It's, it's, I don't have to Google like that Tumblr. Meme. Yeah. I don't have yeah. to Google. What does it feel like to be alone? Uh-huh. Like, I, I know uh-huh. what that feels like. Right. Do you read frequently? Oh yeah. I love reading. 
Who do you like reading? Um, gosh, my my biggest. I think I am Jack Kerouac's probably biggest fan mm. alive. Um, but I love Stephen King. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a big horror nerd. Um, love Hemingway, the classics, Vonnegut, um, mm. Steinbeck, Chuck Palahniuk. Um, yeah, I, I have, I mean, I'll, I'll send you a picture. I have a library in my office that's not even, I think 85% of my books are on the shelf and it's jam-packed. Um, I, I like to cycle. So I used to read more than I do now, um, unfortunately. But I like to diversify my fiction reading. Um, mm-hmm. So like if I go to a bookstore, I go to a used bookstore, I'll just go to the fiction section. And as long as it's not like cheap trash, you know, pick something up that looks interesting and read that. Do you ever read commercial fiction? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I do occasionally like, like I would consider Stephen King commercial fiction. That's true. Yeah. You know, that's, that's probably true. I, I read him. Um, but like I, I used to read, um, the hell was his name? He did the James Patterson, James Patterson, James Patterson. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I've read a couple of his books, um, John Grisham novels, you know, I like, I love like mysteries, mystery and horror are my, like my favorite. Um, they are my absolute favorite. Um, so like anything involving that, those yeah. types of elements, I'll gobble that shit up. I find myself, I don't know if you can relate. I find myself, sometimes I get intimidated reading the greats or reading. And if I say the greats literature, I'll just go, Oh my God, you see the craft and you're like, Oh my yeah. God. Like the years you put into doing that, not to and, and commercial fiction. I'm not, this is not a critique of commercial fiction because it has its, its own peaks and valleys. But for me, when I read commercial fiction, I go, oh, motherfucker, I could write that. And I could write that better. And I got better story. So I find it very inspiring to read commercial fiction because it makes me truly inspired to go write something that maybe an objective person would go, yeah, you're no fucking James Patterson. Just settle down. But to me, I'm like, shit, if they could say that, this simply about this, I could write something with just if I added this, it'd be a bit more literary. And then I could do this. And it's like- It, it, for some reason, I find it very energizing to read that. Whereas when I read somebody that's really fucking like blows me away, like paragraph one, I'm like, oh, fuck, I don't think I'm ever going to get there. You know? Yeah. It, I don't know. That's just me, though. Yeah. I, I mean, I t- totally agree. I have I have come across books that I've read and I'm like, I could read that. Um, there was a there was a book that came out recently called The Shadows, I think. And it was a horror novel. Um, and you know, I was listening to a passage from it and I was like, man, I could do this. Shit so much better. <laughs> I was like, get out of here with this. <laughs> but then you, you do, I think you need both. You, you need do. like, yeah. you need to have the balance because I think when you read, when you read, you really do learn how to write. If you're if you're reading carefully, you can. I mean, Hunter S. Thompson. One of one of the famous things about him was he typed 
the great Gatsby on a typewriter. That's how he learned his, his prosaic structure. Um, was just copying word for word the great Gatsby. That's how he learned his rhythm. I don't know if that's true. That's the legend. I mean, the dude is like sure. as mysterious as you could be. You know, like he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's walking around with a suitcase of every drug man. It's like, I bro, you did you really? But you know, I think that you you do need to you do need both. You do need both. Dude, this has been I feel like this has been a longer time coming than it has. This has been a blast to have you on. I had Tell so everybody, much fun. seriously, like uh, this, this has just been, I, I really enjoyed the shit out of this. Yeah. Um, tell everybody where they need to follow you and all the stuff that you're doing. And if they want to keep tabs on you, how they need to do that. Yeah. So if um, my personal page is, is pretty much private to people that I know. Um, however, I publish semi-regularly like poems and such uh, at the ashes of Helmand on Instagram. So you can follow me on there. Um, and I'm in the works of putting together a sub stack where I'm going to put out like poetry and uh, the occasional short story. So that'll get updated on the Instagram page when that gets released. Betchen. Steve, let's do this again, brother. This was great. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Whenever I will be here. That was the Savage Wonder of Steve Callahan. Go to his site, check out all of his stuff. If you guys aren't following him, I, I highly encourage following him. I think he is going to become more and more and more prolific as time goes on. Uh, he's just got an awful lot of ideas. And, um, you know, he was a writer first, and he's not going anywhere as a writer uh, in the future. So uh, somebody to keep your eye on. Okay. Uh, I don't really have a ton of stuff to plug for Vet Rep. We're in the middle of the winter doldrums as far as stuff you guys can come here, support, see. Um, so I'll have more stuff probably in other weeks. We're doing a ton of stuff behind the scenes here, but for everything we're doing, uh, what I'd recommend is jumping on our mailing list slash literary blog. So you can hear and read about all the stuff we're doing when we do have stuff to announce. Uh, the best way to do that, is to go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. Go to our Now Playing tab. You will see, when you press that button, a whole bunch of options, uh, one of which is to sign up to our literary blog for free. And then you will get a curated piece of veteran writing, including writing from Steve Gallian, um, every day in your inbox. And then we'll put some shameless plugs and updates uh, below that in the email that you receive. So it's a great way to stay in touch. And um, yeah, that list just keeps growing and growing and growing. And we're very grateful for it. So vetrep.org, vetrep.org, vetrep.org is the place to go for that. I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of everyone here at Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time. We talk to another veteran about their own personal, unique, savage wonder.